Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm delighted today to be talking with Joseph Stiglitz about the consequences of coronavirus for global economic recovery and for government itself. Joe Stiglitz is, of course, as everyone listening to this podcast will know, a professor at Columbia University, as well as the recipient of the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences in 2001. He's known globally for his very wide-ranging work, including writing on inequality, globalization, and development, as well as the economics of information. For Bill Clinton, he chaired the Council of Economic Advisors. He was the chief economist of the World Bank, where I first met him, and he has chaired a commission for the United Nations on reforming the international monetary system. Professor Stiglitz, a very warm welcome. Nice to be here. Well, coronavirus and these extraordinary times is the prompt for our conversation. So let me start with one of the big questions. What can we say now about how it might change the shape of economies? It's, it's had a fundamental effect in uh, making us aware uh, of uh, a new risk to the global economy. We thought about wars. We thought about trade wars. Uh, we had been warned about the dangers of a pandemic, in a sense, by SARS and MERS and Ebola. But nobody or very few people took it seriously. Now we see that it's... Uh, effect on the economy is uh, uh, as devastating as ver- almost anything we've ever seen. Of course, uh, historically, uh, pandemics, disease has, uh, have uh, from time to time played a devastating role uh, in uh, the evolution of uh, the global economy. So in a sense, from a historical perspective, uh, we're not surprised. But in terms of modern economies, uh, it's really taken us aback. And uh, are you thinking there mainly of the United States or really a lot of the developed uh, economies and perhaps some of the um, less developed ones as well? Well, everybody is being affected. Uh, that's why it's called a pandemic it's, yeah. <laughs> it's all, over the, all over the world. At first, uh, one wasn't sure the extent to which it would uh, be transmitted into the developing countries. And it was, in some sense, slow getting there. Partly, people hypothesized because those from developing countries weren't traveling around, and so transmission was much more slow. Uh, On the other hand, anybody looking at the health conditions in these countries, the extent to which they are crowded together, they rely on public transportation, the limitations on their uh, health facilities was very worried and uh, worried too about the potential economic impacts in the advanced countries. We've spent in the United States, we've spent uh, $3 trillion and and the Federal Reserve uh, has provided a corresponding amount of liquidity uh, the developing countries and emerging markets just don't have uh, that kind of money. While it was slow to move into the developing countries, emerging markets, uh, now one of the real hotspots is Latin America. So uh, any sense that we can be confident that it will be limited to the advanced countries has, has uh, evaporated. Uh, we just don't know how widespread it will be in uh Africa and in Asia. There's so much we don't know about this disease. Given all that, and this is one of these 
extraordinary times of, of, of governments trying to make decisions in the middle of enormous uncertainty. But what, what is it that we could say, if anything, really, at this point about the kind of unemployment that might follow, about the kind of changes of composition of the economies that might follow? Well, I think one of the most interesting aspects of uh, what has been going on is that there have been very different responses, both to the health threat as well as to the threat to the economy in different countries in the world. We probably never had this kind of uh, cross-section variation among different countries. So we have, in a sense, a, a laboratory. What is striking is how successful some countries have been in controlling the disease and how failures in other places, uh, New Zealand, Iceland, uh, South Korea, have been models of controlling the disease. The United States, on the other hand, is a model uh, of uh, failure. Now, and I'm sitting in one that, uh, you know, to reach into British understatement is not a model of success, at least. At the moment. That's right. Britain, the, the UK is not a model of success. Uh, not, Sweden is not a model of success. Uh, so um, uh, Germany has done uh, much better. The reason I began the discussion by talking about health is you're not going to, uh, until you control the p- health aspects of the pandemic, you won't really be able to control the economic impacts. But just looking at the economic impacts, we see again some very big successes and some big failures. The United States has had the largest proportion increase in unemployment, uh, 40 million newly unemployed. That's about 25% of the labor force. Have, These are uh, huge numbers. Huge number. And, and in fact, among lower income people, 40% of the families have had one or more members of their families uh, lose their jobs. So the impact has been absolutely enormous. And in spite of the U.S. uh, having spent an enormous amount of money. So this is a case where you had badly designed programs, badly implemented on top of a badly designed system of social protection and a badly uh, uh, framed uh, system of administration where the government for 40 years has been undermined. So uh, you can say uh, the attempt by the Republicans to undermine government over four decades did work in making the United States ill-prepared to respond uh, to the crisis. On the other hand, countries like Denmark and again, New Zealand have mitigated very greatly the economic impacts of, uh, of the virus. And you could uh, not both, make this parochial uh, from our point of view, but you could include uh, the UK in that. Um, the, the furlough scheme, uh, the sport scheme has been one of the things that is perceived to have gone uh, very well for the government. But I, I was wanting to, that's right. to, to, to tease out what you thought about the difference between some of these furlough schemes, for example, the, uh, the British one, uh, and what the US has done, because the argument in Britain is, is well, look, uh, we haven't got uh, huge numbers of uh, unemployment, um, a rise in unemployment shooting up in the way that the US has done, uh, but that may be simply disguised by the furlough scheme and the kind of change in the shape of the econ- uh, economy that uh, may be revealed when all this shakes out may actually just produce those very big numbers 
in the end, and, and the numbers are rising already. There's a lot, again, not only about the disease, but about the economic reaction that we don't fully know. But I think at this point, we do understand why America failed so badly. Remember, we spent uh, more money proportionately than other countries, and we got poor results. Uh, the reason was that our program uh, was, as I said before, badly designed. We use the banks as the intermediary. Uh, it was designed a loan program, but a loan program that if you kept your workers uh, on your payroll, the loan would be forgiven. Now, two problems with that design. Because you use the banks as an intermediary, the banks provided the money to uh, those who were most connected uh, to the banks. And those were not the most vulnerable firms. They weren't the firms that need the money the most. They were the firms that were most connected to the banks. So the money was channeled to uh, in a way that did not correspond to any sense of national priority. So that was the first problem. Uh, the second problem was it was a loan forgiveness program. And quite frankly, nobody trusts the Trump administration. So many people took the money, but it said, uh, you know, we need the extra liquidity. We don't know what's going to happen, but we are not going to take seriously this loan forgiveness program because the Trump administration is going to find some reason not to forgive the loan. So what happened was they took the money and then uh, it, th they, they didn't. Uh, uh, keep the workers on. And their feeling was, you know, it's cheap money. We'll, we'll, we'll pay it back if we don't need it. We'll keep it as a reserve. Uh, and the worst happens, we go bankrupt. So it, it was just uh, very badly designed. Well, I wanted to pick up on something you've, you've uh, written recently. Um, no, I wouldn't um, say perhaps uh, a sweepingly, no one trusts the Trump administration. He still has quite a few supporters, it seems. But <laughs> you, you, you wrote recently saying that poorly designed stimulus programs are, are dangerous, not just uh, not, not very helpful in exacerbating inequality and so sowing instability and undermining support for government precisely when it's when it's needed. Um, is this one of the things that you're talking about? I wondered in particular how you thought, um, what you thought the effect of these programs might be on inequality. Yeah, let me talk about both the inequality and the instability. I mentioned that the money was supposed to go to the most vulnerable, but uh, disproportionately, it went, for instance, to the more connected of the small businesses. Uh, so it didn't go to those who needed it uh, the most. We had a, another program, which was a $1,200 check that uh, was given to low-income individuals, actually even moderate-income individuals. And the checks went out fairly uh, quickly to those who had paid taxes in the previous year. The problem is the people who are the most vulnerable, the people at the bottom, didn't have to pay taxes and so, so it's missing out precisely by the way it's defined it's missing out precisely the most vulnerable people exactly so the government was simply not able to get the money to the people who needed the most and they actually said it may be months before they get the money and this contrast uh, with for instance 
uh, even developing and emerging uh, markets, a country like uh, Argentina identify children uh, in, uh, as needing money. Forty you percent know, of uh, children are in poverty. So within four days of making the decision, uh, the money had been transferred to almost all the families with uh, children in poverty. So it really is testimony to the incompetence uh, of the administration uh, and in the incompetence of the, of, you might say, the, the administrative framework in the United States. I mentioned also instability. One of the things, uh, consequences of of this uh, flood of liquidity from the Federal Reserve and this flood of money uh, that was not well targeted is that many people simply build up their uh, bank accounts. Those uh, uh, cash reserves uh, went up uh, enormously uh, in a very uh, short period of time. Well, people wanted to get more than a zero interest rate, and so they started looking uh, for higher returns. And at least there's some speculation that a lot of the money went into speculation and uh, <laughs> the volatility uh, in uh, the markets that we've seen in the last uh, uh, few weeks. What about those who've prospered during all this? And I'm thinking in particular of the digital companies who've really owned the lockdown. Is coronavirus in a way redis- redistributing wealth to them? And what should we do about it if that's the case? Well, yes, it is redistributing well to them. They, they, you know, the people who are losing are the people who are, you might say, the uh, uh, frontline workers, the people who come in contact with others, uh, waiters uh, uh, in small restaurants. Uh, these are low-income individuals who've been losing their jobs uh, disproportionately. Uh, and the winners are those who can uh, work remotely and uh, digital, obviously, uh, being uh, the, the really quintessential example of that. And they're, they're racking in money. Uh, what is uh, so disturbing, of course, is these are the very companies that avoided paying taxes, uh, that engaged in a global uh, agenda of tax avoidance uh, in Europe, you know, uh, Apple became a poster child of tax avoidance with a special deal with Ireland. But Google was not uh, much different, and, and the same thing for the for the other companies. So, as they've excelled in their innovation, they've also excelled in their tax avoidance. So here you have the irony that uh, the companies who are benefiting are not only among the richest companies in the world, they're among the companies that are the uh, best in avoiding their social responsibilities, their first social responsibility, which is to pay their taxes. So the answer, what to do about it, uh, two things. First, uh, we have to make them pay their taxes. Uh, And there has been an international drive towards that, but the U.S. has put a spoke in that wheel very recently. Saying this, this, is, so. this, this, this is this is this is picking on U.S. Uh, success stories. Yeah, that, uh, and it's not picking on U.S. success stories. What it's really saying is every company ought to make a fair share, uh, contribute to the fair share, uh, and 
this is a one of the untoward aspects of globalization. Uh, it has had some benefits, but one of the negative aspects of globalization is it opened up uh, new avenues for tax avoidance, and uh, some of our companies have benefited enormously from government support, government research uh, that helped develop the internet, but feel no compunction about not paying back. Uh, and uh, so have done what they can to avoid taxes. But the second thing that needs to be done is to break up their market power. Uh, they've engaged in anti-competitive practices. Uh, some of their profits come of uh, the, the fact that they've uh, are monopolies uh, or uh, firms with enormous amount of market power. And uh, the European Union has uh, led the way in bringing case after case uh, against these uh, digital giants. I wondered, looking at the US example, and indeed the German example, uh, perhaps, whether there was a case to say that federal governments um, handle this better, and that even if you don't have a, a a strong uh, centrally planned strategy on this uh, that the, the states in the United States case can, can, uh, can find their own ways or whether it, it looks like an argument for a very centralized government? Well, I think it's actually a mixed story because we at this particular moment had a government that was particularly incompetent uh, in many, many dimensions, administratively incompetent, but also might say scientifically incompetent. Uh, the countries that responded the most had governments that believed in science who could quickly draw upon the best expertise and therefore could design a program that was uh, an effective response. Uh, and also a kind of expertise also in economics as well as in health. At this particular moment, the United States obviously had probably the one of the least competent governments in every one of these dimensions, and gridlock uh, in the political context. Now, the fact that we've had a number of governors in California and New York that could fill the gap uh, was really our savior. If we didn't have these, uh, the capacity at the state level to respond, we would have been in a really tough uh, position. Uh, it did. It was very clear it would have been a lot better if we had had uh, an effective uh, government uh, developing the test, uh, 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 setting up national standards. That would have been the first best. We didn't have that. And having uh, an alternative of some states having an effective response uh, proved to be very important. At the same time, there are some states that are still... Uh, just like there are climate deniers, there were almost uh, um, uh, COVID-19 deniers and uh, who, who've opened up their stakes. And, and uh, many of us are very worried about the spread of the disease, not only within those stakes, but spreading to those stakes that are trying to have uh, rational uh, policies. I do think that the countries that have responded the most effectively our countries like New Zealand, where there was a strong central government response and an intelligent central government response. But there's, there are other factors that obviously you could stir into that. Uh, it's comparatively small population and it's um, you know, uh, a long way from any other 
countries which make things easier. It doesn't mean it couldn't have messed up its uh, response instead of doing it very well. But um, I, I think it's one of the interesting things about all this, of whether it tells us anything about whether some types of government handle it better or really whether it doesn't matter. But what matters is the quality of their response themselves. So it doesn't matter whether they're democracies or authoritarian, whether they're federal or centralized, but it does matter um, what the plan actually is. It does matter in some ways. Um, the authoritarian governments uh, did have more instruments uh, in the sense that they could force the kinds of quarantine that would be very difficult to implement in more democratic countries. Uh, on the other hand, the more authoritarian countries were able to suppress uh, coverage uh, and suppress uh, um, kind of concerns, just like uh, historically uh, authoritarian governments suppressed news about famines. Uh, so uh, democratic uh uh, media is very important in being able to uh, raise awareness uh, of a problem. Overall, though, I think the success of uh, the few countries, and uh, South Korea is obviously a much larger country than New Zealand, and it's been uh, relatively successful. Germany has uh, been relatively successful. I think these success stories show that democratic governments can implement effective responses uh, within the constraints of, of what a democratic populace uh, will find acceptable. I remember back when you were working uh, for Bill Clinton, uh, the phrase the third way was very popular. It uh, seems very quaint now, but something uh, getting at the idea that something between um, entirely untrammeled uh, free market and um, something much more controlling. I was wondering whether you thought all this heralded a bigger role for governments. Oh, I think it definitely does. Uh, you know, when the pandemic uh, struck, uh, everybody, of course, turned to the government. In some ways, in the uh, following weeks, the weaknesses of the private sector were really quite exposed. Uh, uh, the private sector in the United States was not able to even produce the masks and protective gear that were needed. It showed itself not to be resilient. But we also saw that, uh, as I said before, four decades of undermining the role of government had actually worked in making it uh, less effective in being able uh, to respond. You know, this is one of the main themes of my book, People, Power, and uh, Profits, about progressive capitalism, that what we need is uh, a better balance between the market, state, and civil society, and that neoliberalism, uh, supply-side economics, Reaganism, Thatcherism, lost that balance. And I think uh, one of the uh, uh, silver lining on this cloud of this pandemic is that I think we're more likely to emerge from this uh, with a better balance. Where do you think the mood is in the U.S. on that point? Well, I think, you know, America is a very divided country. And those in the more conservative places, the Trump supporters, are uh, viewing masks as an intrusion on their liberty. That is wearing uh, a mask. Yeah. 
That, that's right. Uh, wearing a mask is an intrusion on their manhood and their liberty. They are not willing to recognize what economists would call externalities, that when you go in public and spread the disease, you're imposing costs on others. Whereas in most of the rest of the country, there's a recognition this is a public health problem. And I emphasize the word public health, that uh, what one person does has very large effects on others. And there is a real need for public regulation. So I think overall, the the effect of uh, COVID-19 has been to shift the balance. Uh, it hasn't eliminated uh, this polarization by any means, but it has shifted the balance for people to recognize that we really do need a stronger system of public health, a, a stronger government preparedness, uh, a better uh centers for disease control, that in times of crises, we do need government, but we can't uh, respond effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about about the international institutions then, just following that point, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, indeed the World Health Health Organization itself, have they had their day or do you think um, there is a very clear role for them them in this and one that people and countries support? I think... The response is, again, uh, very parallel. Uh, this is a global disease. It's a pandemic. And it won't really be controlled unless it's controlled everywhere in the world. And that's why international organizations have played a very important role. Now, of course, uh, human institution is perfect. I don't think anybody would say the WHO has acted but no national government has actively uh, either. Certainly the United States hasn't. So I think we've come to recognize that how important the World Health Organization is. And what is needed is a stronger World Health Organization. Um, one of the things that we also recognized is that uh, it's really going to be important that the knowledge that uh, is developed in responding to COVID-19, both the therapeutics and the vaccines, be uh, made widely available with some sense of priorities. Who gets it, who's going to be uh, first, is going to be very important. And uh, again, there's a concern that the private sector won't do this well. Uh, There's a move in the WHO supported by uh, Costa Rica uh, to make sure that the vaccines and therapeutics and the broader intellectual knowledge is made uh, available to everybody uh, as soon as possible. And I think that's really important. Now, in terms of providing the economic resources to respond both to the health threat and to the economic threat, uh, the multilateral uh, institutions have again done a fantastic job. Uh, The IMF has been really at the forefront of this. Uh, unfortunately, um, they could only do what the member countries uh, support. Uh, the IMF has suggested that there be a, a, an issuance of what are called special drawing rights. It's like IMF issued money. $500 billion is nothing compared to the $3 trillion that the U.S. spent on a single country. But it's a lot more than the countries can afford on their own. 
little sad that the United States did not support that initiative. I, I hope that as time goes on, uh, that position gets reconsidered. And let me ask you, finally, you've written very widely about, about information and about uncertainty. What advice do you give to governments trying to make decisions in the middle of all this uncertainty? Yeah, th- this is a real case of, of making decisions under uncertainty. And I think there are a couple of principles uh, that are important. One of them is acting in a precautionary way. Don't just think about what is the average, but what could be the worst case scenario and how, what we can do to prevent that worst case scenario. You know, we buy insurance all the time. Why do we have insurance? To prevent the worst case scenario where we don't have enough money to pay for our health ins- uh, uh, care or to pay for one thing or another. So uh, it, we, we are risk averse and we ought to make those investments to protect us against those worst contingencies. In the end, uh, we may say, well, we didn't need to. It's not wasted money because it has prevented that worst contingency. The second thing is these kinds of high-risk situations always, almost inevitably, affect the poorest, the most vulnerable in our society. Why is is that? Well, in this particular case, it's very clear. This disease, this virus is not, we might call it, no, it's, it's, it's very it's very clear in this this case. Um, it's going after yep. it's going after those who have pre existing health conditions and and those tend to be the poor and and, and the least financial support and reserves of support and and and, exactly. and, and, and all these things. Yep. And and there there are also workers who are most exposed, and we don't in the United States particularly even have paid uh, sick leave. So these people who are living paycheck to paycheck when they get sick. They have to go to work. Um, so uh, they're, they're affected the most. So that's the second principle, uh, recognizing that these disease, that, that, that this is, uh, 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 that those who are most vulnerable are likely to be the most affected. Direct your attention to try to protect them. Well, thank you very, very much indeed uh, for that. That was fascinating. The British government is very fond of saying it's too early to tell on many of these points, which has an element of truth. But mind you, they're they're facing an election in four years. Uh, President Trump is, of course, facing re-election in November, which will bring at least some of the answers to what part of what we've been discussing about public support for these things. Professor Stiglitz, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.